RTI International's Justice Practice Area presents Just Science. Welcome to Just Science, a podcast for justice professionals and anyone interested in learning more about forensic science, innovative technology, current research, and actionable strategies to improve the criminal justice system. In episode one of our Trauma-Informed Research Methods mini-season, Drs. Jacqueline Houston-Kolnick, Hannah Feeney, and Rebecca Pfeffer, research scientists at RT International, sat down to discuss incorporating trauma-informed practices when conducting research. Given the prevalence of trauma among the population, it is important for researchers to be mindful and aware of trauma in their research participants, regardless of whether their studies focus on trauma. Prioritizing a trauma-informed approach from the study design to data collection and dissemination promote safety and support for all involved. Listen along as Drs. Houston Kolnick, Pfeffer, and Feeney describe what it means to use a trauma-informed approach in all aspects of the research process, the importance of training research staff to incorporate trauma-informed principles, and their own experiences with creating trauma-informed study designs. This episode is funded by the RTI International Justice Practice Area. Some content in this podcast may be considered sensitive and may evoke emotional responses or may not be appropriate for younger audiences. Here's your host, Jacqueline Kolnick. Hello, and welcome to Just Science. I'm your host, Jacqueline Kolnick. You might remember me from our trafficking series. I'm a community research psychologist at RTI International in the Victimization and Response Program. My work is focused on gender-based violence with a focus on sexual and domestic violence. Today's episode, which I'm so excited about, we're going to discuss a really important topic to us as researchers and that's trauma-informed research methods. It's something that we think about a lot, something that we're really passionate about. And here to discuss this today are doctors Hannah Feeney and Rebecca Pfeffer. Um, This episode's gonna be just a little bit different. Uh, We're gonna be having a conversation among the three of us about what trauma-informed methods are and why they matter. Our episode today will really set the stage for our future ones in this series where we're going to walk through different phases of the research process, such as project management, data collection, dissemination. And we're bringing in some great experts in the field who are going to talk to us about how they carry out their research projects with a trauma-informed lens. So welcome, Hannah and Rebecca. Thank you for talking with us today. Can you kick it off just with some brief introductions of yourselves? Of course. Hello, my name is Hannah Feeney, and I'm a community psychologist I have the privilege of working with Jacqueline and Rebecca in RTI International's Victimization and Response Program, where I do research on sexual victimization and other forms of gender-based violence. And I'm Rebecca Pfeffer, and I'm a senior research criminologist here at RTI in the Victimization and Response Program with Jacqueline and Hannah. My work focuses on inclusive research methodologies and on gender-based violence, especially human trafficking. So glad you guys could join together today. I think a great place for us to start would be to define what trauma-informed means. It's a phrase that gets used a lot. Um, So when we use this terminology, what do we mean? That is a really great question, Jacqueline, but I actually kind of want to take a step back because to understand what it means to be trauma-informed, we need to also discuss trauma. And as I'm sure many folks who are listening to this podcast already know, trauma can result from any number of challenging or negative experiences. And in our work specifically, we often think about the trauma that results from crime victimization. So individuals 
who have experienced either an acute instance of trauma, so like a, a one-time sexual assault, or something that is more chronic and ongoing, like domestic violence over a long period of time. So individuals who have experienced or witnessed a crime, or even their family members and friends, may be left with this constellation of impacts or symptoms that can, you know, be narrow in focus or can be really broad ranging and impact every component of a person's life. So those symptoms could be physical, emotional, cognitive, or even psychosocial. So when I say physical, I'm thinking about folks who have migraines or cardiovascular challenges or stomach issues that persist after experiencing trauma. For folks who have emotional impacts that could look like depression or anxiety that's worsened in the wake of a crime. We've heard of folks experiencing cognitive challenges, so that might be memory impairment, issues falling and staying asleep. And those psychosocial impacts are really broad, and that could look like drug or alcohol use, challenges maintaining friendships or employment, or even risky sexual behavior. All of these impacts can start to unfurl in the wake of a crime. Additionally, trauma can also come from the help-seeking experience. So this is when somebody who has experienced a crime or some other form of trauma goes and seeks support from a family member or a friend or seeks to report the crime to law enforcement or get medical attention from a medical provider. And if the folks that they're seeking support from are not mindful of the impacts of trauma or don't understand it in a meaningful way, this can cause further harm to the victims they're seeking to support. So sometimes we hear examples of uh, victims of sexual assault who share their stories with others and the person responds, well, what were you wearing when you were raped? And survivors of sexual assault have reported that that reaction can actually be more harmful and cause more trauma than the rape itself. So we want to avoid this from happening, right? We want to make sure that when folks are coming to us seeking support or when we're conducting research with individuals who have experienced some kind of trauma, that we're not causing further harm. To most effectively support individuals who have experienced trauma in some way, Research has demonstrated the need for a trauma-informed approach. So now we're actually getting to the meat of this. There are multiple models of trauma-informed approaches that exist, but generally they acknowledge a need for providers or researchers or anybody working with someone who may have experienced trauma to understand what it is and what the impacts of it are. So not to ask that question of like, what were you wearing? Because that could have a really negative impact on somebody that, that could have a long-lasting impact on their help-seeking experience, for example. These models also share common principles of safety, survivor's choice and voice and control in the process, and encourage individuals to be communicative and collaborative with the individuals who may have experienced trauma. But that said, trauma-informed approaches look a little bit different depending on who is implementing them and the purpose for them being implemented within a particular setting. That's such a great point, Hannah, because I do think, you know, there's a really important consideration when we're talking about trauma-informed practices, policies, or organizations, right? Those all exist at different levels. But there are some settings, right, where we can adopt a certain practice. So you might adopt in a law enforcement setting doing trauma-informed interviewing, meaning I'm, I'm conducting this 
interview in a way that's mindful of trauma, the way I'm asking my questions, being mindful of people's reactions as that might arise. And then you have organizations like victim service providers that are trying to really embed trauma-informed practices and policies in, in all parts of what they do. It's like the live and breathe and like the substance of what they're doing in their day-to-day. And so it's important for us to acknowledge that some settings may actually compound trauma, that some of the practices may re-traumatize folks and bring up their experiences. And it's important for us as organizations to step back and consider whether or not we can adapt those practices. And in some settings, like correctional settings, there might be certain parts of that that are, are not able to be adapted. But can we potentially adopt practices that help to communicate to folks about what those practices are? Let's say just before I'm going to put my hands on someone, I'm going to tell them that I'm going to need to do that. That in and of itself can be a trauma-informed practice, even if the setting itself can't fully adopt trauma-informed care as central to their work and to their function. One model that I have loved, and Hannah and Rebecca have heard me (laughs) talk about it a lot, is the Missouri model. Talks about trauma-informed care along a continuum where there's, you know, being trauma-aware, trauma-sensitive, trauma-responsive, and trauma-informed. And it kind of tears it up. Trauma-aware is really looking at awareness and attitudes among staff, becoming aware of how prevalent trauma is, and beginning to consider what that means um, and how it may come up for clients and staff. There's also then trauma-sensitive. You're moving one step further. You're trying to increase your knowledge of trauma thinking about application, so what could this mean for the practices of that setting, and generating staff buy-in or doing skill development in order to increase capacity for staff. Then you get to trauma-responsive, which is kind of that next tier, where you're really trying to begin to change that organizational culture to highlight the role of trauma. And this is at all levels of the organization. So you're considering like staff beginning to rethink their routines or the infrastructure of the organization and moving towards change and integration of trauma-informed practice. And the last one, trauma-informed integrates leadership. So throughout the entire organization, we're adopting these principles and it's fully bought in. We're all in this together and we're really thinking about this systemically. And I think The question that this is leaving me with is, so where on this continuum do researchers fall? That's such a great question. And, you know, as Hannah was saying, these trauma-informed practices are important for all of us in lots of different fields, in lots of different capacities. But for researchers, it really depends. You know, we operate from a space of understanding that any individual can have traumatic experiences in their history and that we need to honor those experiences and treat people with dignity and respect, regardless of whether they've disclosed those experiences. So really, every researcher should incorporate trauma-informed approaches into their practice. But we're back to talking about that continuum because, realistically, some research projects are more likely to require this approach than others. So a a project that involves secondary data analysis is less likely to need any sort of trauma-informed response, whereas when you're doing direct primary data collection, it really should be front and center. And since much of our work focuses on experiences with victimization and interactions with the justice system, our work often requires asking people to speak about trauma or experiences that are adjacent to their trauma, like reporting to law enforcement. While other researchers are talking about things like tobacco use or climate change, 
they should definitely still be considerate of trauma-informed approaches, but they may not need to centralize them and keep them front of mind in the same way that we might. Yeah, maybe they fall more on that trauma-aware. I need to be mindful of the impacts of trauma and how this may show up. I can think of examples of doing research that isn't focused on victimization or trauma, but being aware, given my knowledge, that someone potentially was triggered by a question that I asked, right? I can see a change in their demeanor. I can see kind of that hesitancy to talk about something. And so how in that moment can I reply to that person in a trauma-informed way, whether it's saying, hey, we can take a beat. Do you want to take a pause for a minute? Or how are we doing? Or just being mindful then and how I ask the next question. So there's lots of different ways we could do that. But I, I do wonder, right, for someone looking at tobacco use, someone could still have a trauma history. But you're right, Rebecca, right? They might not need to implement the various protocols that we do in a lot of our victimization-centric work. So let's get into it. What parts of research should be trauma-informed? I mean, I think our answer for this is just going to be everything. Every part of research can and should be trauma-informed, right? But to be a little bit more concrete about that, I think there's many ways to consider trauma and how to be trauma-informed throughout the entire research process. And that can be from the way we lead projects, the way we train and prepare staff to participate in studies, to interview folks, to the ways we actually design and carry out our projects, and even the ways that we think about analysis and how we report out on what we learn. So sometimes folks think about being trauma-informed just within the scope of data collection, but really front to back, from the beginning to the end, every step of that process, we can incorporate trauma-informed principles throughout. And this podcast series is intended to dive deeper into each of those stages. I love that plug, Hannah. Stay tuned for more. Let's get a little bit more concrete. You know, give us a sneak peek about what you mean. I think when a lot of people imagine taking a trauma-informed approach to research, they think specifically about the ways that they interact with research subjects. Uh, but can you tell us a little bit more about how trauma-informed practices can be used and benefit the whole staff on research projects as well? This is such an important question, uh, and I know that because I have messed this up in different research projects along the way and just continue to learn and grow and inform my own practice as a researcher. So through that experience, I've learned many of us work with different teams on different projects and people come to work with different levels or training or understanding about what trauma is and how it matters in our work. So it's important to remind team members, some of whom could be brand new to research, and some could be really seasoned researchers, but maybe they've spent their whole career approaching things one way and haven't really thought about how trauma matters and how a trauma-informed approach could change the way that they do their work. So reminding team members and training them about how trauma may have impacted the people that are at the heart of our work is really important. So we can train team members about trauma reactions, how they may present, and more importantly, what to do if that happens. And in doing so, we can also make sure that staff on our projects are comfortable with potentially encountering trauma from study participants. And if not, which is understandable and totally okay, we can make sure that they're reassigned to other work on the project that's more comfortable for them. And as project directors, we also have to remember that our project staff may also encounter trauma in doing the actual project work. So I can think of an example of a project I worked on where we were doing interviews with people who had experienced sex trafficking. 
And we spent a lot of time developing a trauma-informed approach to the data collection. And we had people with lived experience who were conducting the interviews. We had a distress protocol. We made sure that we had a therapist available during and after those interviews. The interviewers were trained really well and felt ready before they started doing these interviews. And we felt really good about all of those parts of the project. And then what we didn't think about was how on the back end, we had staff who would be transcribing those interviews and staff who would be analyzing those interviews. And we hadn't prepared for that other piece where we had to also think about our staff's reaction, the way that they were digesting this information that they were learning and being asked to do by you know a superior at work. And it was a good reminder that we need to make sure that we take a trauma-informed approach to the whole team and to think about it in a broader way. To build on that a little bit, Rebecca, I think about, you know, we could have stress responses, experience trauma by consuming the content that those with lived experience share with us through our data collection approaches. But researchers, folks working on these projects might also have lived experience themselves And so supporting one another through conducting this work, knowing that our colleagues may have histories of trauma in some other capacity within the space that we're conducting research on and with is important as well. And another critical piece to think about here is acknowledging that we don't necessarily want to have our colleagues feel the need to disclose to us to feel like they're receiving trauma-informed support from their coworkers, right? So thinking about, I don't want to have one of my staff members feel the need to disclose to me that they've experienced a sexual assault so that they can take care of themselves on one of my projects. I want to run a project that supports individuals who may or may not have had a victimization history. Yeah. And to create the norm, right? That's like, this is how we do our work to avoid the potential of re-traumatization for anyone. We encourage you to take care of yourselves and one another throughout these projects. Yeah, absolutely. And then to, I think as project directors, to model that so often too, right? I'm not often very good at that. And I could encourage someone to say, hey, this could be a really intense interview or after you transcribe, why don't you go for a walk for 15 minutes? Or why don't you go do something that will just help you transition between tasks? And those are small ways, right, that we can encourage folks to care for themselves. And ideally, that is part of the work. So that means including that in project time, that part of your responsibility is to give yourself that time to transition between a next task. I have an example of this just from yesterday. I was meeting with a coworker in person and on her desk, she had a textbook about sexual victimization. And I was like, oh, this one looks really interesting. I haven't seen it before. And I go to open it up and she stops me and she's like, just as an FYI, there are images in there that might be hard to look at. And if this isn't the right time for you to look at that right now, maybe you could borrow that book and check it out later. I was like, oh, thanks for sharing that. Like, I actually feel comfortable doing that, but just having that be the norm and it not feel weird to have that conversation with a colleague. I'm so glad she did that. And I think so often, you know, Rebecca, you shared about a time where 
you had set so much up to be successful and thoughtful and intentional. And there's just that piece that you forgot. And transcription is so often one of those really surprising areas that happens. And I think in in university settings or even in larger research organizations, often we're, we're either outsourcing it or we're having more junior staff or undergrad interns or younger graduate students doing that transcription work without having had those conversations around trauma and its impact. And so there's a responsibility to do that. And I also wonder, Rebecca, you had a time where an editor reached out too, right? After reading a report. And we've learned now, like, oh, maybe we need to let folks know what's the content of the report before we send it. Yeah. And that was a totally different project too. So these things keep happening where I think When you're really embedded in a project, sometimes you forget how difficult the content can be. And maybe we just need to normalize giving a little bit of an overview of what we're, what we're sending or what we're expecting or what's coming, regardless of what's in it, regardless of whether we think it may be difficult or not, so that people can just expect it and maybe also create processes where multiple people who can do the same types of tasks can say, you know what? I don't want to do this one. I'm seeing a topic that isn't going to work for me or is not comfortable for me or is going to cause me some discomfort. And I'm going to put that one back on the shelf and let someone else pick it up. And that becomes easier when we do things like you're saying, Jacqueline, naming the topics just kind of as a courtesy. Those are sort of practical, easy changes we can make to our processes that can really be helpful. We love a boundary. (laughs) People setting and sticking to their boundaries. And normalizing that boundary setting is a good thing to do. And Hannah, to your point, which I think is such an important one earlier around, you know, disclosure of your own victimization experience, if someone has that, right, that we don't want to have to make that the norm. And instead, if we just normalize boundary setting without the need to justify why and trust just that people know themselves and know what they can or cannot handle for whatever reason, then it creates that space for everyone. And again, I'm going back to modeling, but it's like also me modeling that for folks as well as I am working on research projects or asking for it without needing to justify. I think I tend to be an over-explainer. So I'm like, I want to tell you why. And sometimes I don't want to. And that should just be okay. And I think as more and more we embed that in teams, it normalizes it, which is a gift to those that we work with. So we've kind of already been touching on this, but We talked earlier about how being trauma-informed is a multi-level endeavor, meaning it not only is, you know, for the processes of how we do research, but then also how our research team is structured. So from an organizational or a staff perspective, what does it mean to be trauma-informed for a research team potentially? Yeah, thanks for asking us to actually explicitly name this, Jacqueline. We've kind of been dancing around it a little bit, but there is a name for this concept of trauma impacting those doing this work, and that's vicarious trauma. So in technical terms, vicarious trauma is this occupational challenge, right? It's It refers to people who work or volunteer within the fields of victim services or law enforcement, medical providers, emergency medical folks, I mean, even firefighters, right? Other individuals who have continuous exposure to trauma, violence, victimization, through their employment. And research can be part of that, right? So if you're doing research on topics that are adjacent to victimization and trauma, 
vicarious trauma could be a factor here. And this work-related trauma exposure can occur from listening to clients recount their victimization. So that might be a, a therapist listening to clients discuss trauma that they've experienced. It could be looking at videos of exploited children through like an ICAC program, a internet crimes against children um, law enforcement program. It could be reviewing case files or hearing about victimization through some other means. And that can have an impact on folks, right? So it is not just the individual who has experienced the crime or the trauma themselves. It's also those who are supporting them and have that consistent exposure to this kind of violence that can be really, really hard. And we know that the impacts can be really varied, right? So some folks, vicarious trauma results in a changed worldview. That is the kind of token component that happens as a result of vicarious trauma. And that change in worldview can be positive. It could elicit gratitude in someone, but it can also be negative and create doubt, grief, or a change in the way one sees themselves being able to navigate the world. It's so interesting when you're talking about that, Hannah, I thought of the book Trauma Stewardship, I think it is. And it, the way it starts is kind of around this, the author's experience of being on a cliff and having some like kind of darker thoughts, not around harming herself, but just kind of like this curiosity and her researcher mind kind of going and then being in trauma work, kind of connecting those two. And she shares it with her partner who's like, what, are you okay? And I remember reading that book and actually talking to one of our friends, Hannah, Jessica Shaw, and she was like, oh yeah, I, I resonated with that. Like, like, it's like a thing in this book, people who read it and who do this work get it. And it's sometimes people in our lives don't or who don't do as much trauma research, like the way it does actually sometimes change the way that you think or see the world. It's funny you mention that because Jess Shaw is who encouraged me to take a beat before I opened that textbook yesterday. So shout out to Dr. Shaw at University of Illinois at Chicago. <laughs> I was actually wondering if it was her. And so I think that's the other piece of it, of one, that change in worldview, but also even though I've been doing this work for 12 years, I have multiple instances where something has really caught me off guard and I've needed to take a second. And I remember at one point I had to just step away from a project for a little while. Like I need a month of doing menial tasks <laughs> And then maybe I can get back into this more in-depth coding work, but this is just a little bit too much for me. This is very descriptive and I'm needing space. And we actually then instituted a schedule where like folks had set times off and then we had backup people who could hop in. And it means things took a little longer for the team as a collective, but it's worth it because then we have the longevity of being able to do this work. Well, I'm so excited because episode with Becky Campbell, who is actually one of the people that I have gone to one time when I did not have a team set up well and asked for her advice. And so she gave me some great practical suggestions. And so we'll be diving into that. And I think we're kind of getting close to the end of our time here, team. Is there anything you would like to leave listeners with today? You know, I think being trauma-informed might not be intuitive for some, right? It's it's not how everybody was trained. It doesn't come easily to all folks. And I think that's totally okay. It's really a muscle that you can learn to flex over time. 
So it becomes a little bit more intuitive on projects. And throughout this podcast series, I think one of the things we're hoping to do is offer some tangible tips for implementing trauma-informed approaches into your work. Ultimately, as researchers, we want to do no harm, and being trauma-informed is a really important part of that, regardless of the type of work we're doing. I would echo that. I think you know something that we've tried to express today, and hopefully we've done it somewhat adequately, is that it isn't that you're either trauma-informed or you're not. It's not a yes or no. It's this continuum, and for all of us, that continuum is different. And I think it's about being open to to doing the things that you can do that are within your purview, that makes sense given your position, your job, and being willing to learn and make small changes. And that every effort we make is worth it. Every small change we make is better than making no change at all. And is we don't know the effects of these efforts, but the effects of really small efforts could be really big for the people that we interact with. And it's worth it to take that chance. And I think the other piece that came to mind as you were talking, Rebecca, is that we're going to sometimes, even if we have all the best intentions, we're still sometimes going to make a mistake or inadvertently something could trigger someone because we don't know everyone's triggers and we don't know everyone's circumstances. And I think part of trauma-informed and practicing and leveraging that muscle, Hannah, is the practice of how to know how to respond then when that happens and to practice it and to own what has happened, to figure out how to game plan in the moment, to be able to debrief afterwards, and then to figure out what's the next best step. And so this is really a process and a journey. And I think that's where the larger trauma-informed movement has really gone is in a continual learning model and a continual assessment and recognizing that we are still striving to really do no harm, like you're saying, Hannah, and being trauma-informed, and we're always going to be learning. And so as we go to take that posture, when you're trying it, being like, okay, I'm trying this out, and we're going to see how it goes. I'm going to get more information, and then I'm going to try again. It's almost being researchers to ourselves (laughs) in our own research process. I'm so excited for this series. Rebecca and Hannah will be popping in as co-hosts along the way as we bring in some experts, but it has been a pleasure discussing trauma-informed research methods with you all today. I thank you for taking the time to chat. I think this conversation really provides such a good foundation for the rest of our episodes, and I just can't wait to see what we learn. Thanks, Jacqueline. Thanks for having us. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to follow and like Just Science on your platform of choice. I'm Jacqueline Kolnick, and this has been another episode of Just Science. Next week, Just Science will be sitting down with Catherine Bright to discuss trauma-informed ways of collecting data. Opinions or points of views expressed in this podcast represent a consensus of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of its funding.